November was a really big month for climate lawsuits. Earlier in the month, the folks who had been petitioning the EPA to use the Toxic Substances Control Act, or TSCA, to regulate greenhouse gas emissions filed a civil suit to compel them to do so. Here's longtime EPA scientist Don Viviani on why. I could never understand when I was at the agency why they would need a petition to, to regulate greenhouse gases under TSCA. It's maddening that with a petition, they're unwilling to do their job. TSCA is a chemical safety act. It's supposed to keep us safe from unsafe chemicals. CO2 and methane are the two most unsafe chemicals that mankind has ever been presented with. We'll hear more from Viviani as well as Dan Galpern, the lead attorney on that case, in a minute. But first, in other major climate litigation news, the first ever climate RICO case has now been filed. The Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act was passed in the 1970s to give the government a way to deal with organized crime, the mafia. In the 80s, the Supreme Court upheld the use of the law in civil cases as well, which can be brought against individuals, organizations, or corporations. If you listened to our season on the Chevron Ecuador case, you might remember that Chevron successfully sued U.S. Attorney Stephen Donziger under RICO. This time, the complaint flows the other way, alleging that the global oil majors, their trade associations, and a network of dark money-funded think tanks and operatives were part of an organized conspiracy to mislead the public on climate change, resulting in a multitude of damages. The plaintiffs in this case are 16 municipalities in the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico that suffered tremendous damage when Hurricane Maria hit and are staring down the barrel of more intense and more frequent hurricanes for the foreseeable future, as we saw recently with Hurricane Fiona. I started following this case three years ago and went to Puerto Rico in 2019 with attorney Melissa K. Sims. Sims is senior counsel for the plaintiff's law firm, Milberg, which also handled several of the opioid RICO cases. In fact, Sims originally went to Puerto Rico while working on one of those cases. The interesting part about the opioid litigation is that really it all started in Puerto Rico. Interesting. Yeah, we represent most of the municipalities. We filed a class action for the municipalities in Puerto Rico early mm -hmm. on, mm -hmm. and we filed racketeering, uh, one of the first cases that filed racketeering in federal court. And what we found out was, you know, Puerto Rico has been kind of the guinea pig for big pharma. One of her first trips there was about a year after Hurricane Maria, and she was shocked by how much devastation there still was. I was shocked by how much there was even in 2019, and there's still things that haven't been fixed, or things that were fixed and that got broken again when Fiona hit. While she was traveling back and forth to Puerto Rico, Sims saw various articles in newspapers talking about how hurricanes were becoming more intense, storm surge was becoming more damaging thanks to climate change, and importantly, how several of these outcomes had been predicted decades earlier by climate scientists who were working for oil companies at the time. A light bulb went off. If it's proven that you, that you cause it, and if it's proven that you, you know, conspired with somebody else to profit off that loss to a municipality, mm -hmm. you should have to pay for it. Last week, Milberg, the firm that Sims works with, filed a RICO case on behalf of 16 Puerto Rican municipalities against seven oil companies, 
three coal companies and hundreds of organizations and operatives alleging consumer fraud, racketeering, antitrust, fraudulent misrepresentation, negligent misrepresentation, negligent fraudulent concealment, conspiracy to defraud, products liability, strict liability failure to warn, negligent failure to warn, and unjust enrichment as a result of the devastating storms of September 2017 and the aftermath of those storms, which occurred as a result of the defendant's acts and omissions. It's a whopping case. The complaint itself is thousands of pages with lots and lots of exhibits. I'll be bringing you a whole lot more on this story in the weeks and months ahead, but having spoken to a few legal analysts about it already, I can say it is a big deal. After the break, we're going to talk about the other climate case I mentioned up top, NASA climate scientist James Hansen, Carbon Majors Report author Richard Heady, and a handful of other folks have sued the EPA to compel them to regulate greenhouse gas emissions under the Toxic Substances Control Act. I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is Damages. If you're listening to this show, you are probably at least climate curious. And one thing that I get asked all the time is, okay, I understand that this is a big problem. We need to act now, but what can I do? The climate crisis can feel like such a huge, overwhelming problem, which is why this April, former U.S. Vice President Al Gore and the Climate Reality are holding a free training on what's happening with the climate and what we can personally do. And actually, I'm going to be part of that training. It all happens in New York City, April 12th through the 14th, and it's going to be big, really big. If you want to know what climate change means for your future, your career, your part of the country or the world, this training is for you. You'll get to hear straight from former U.S. Vice President Al Gore and a lineup of incredible thought leaders, scientists, experts, and more at the top of their fields. I'll be doing a training on climate disinformation as part of this. You'll come away with a real understanding of what's happening to the planet and the skills to make a difference. If you complete the training, you'll join the Climate Reality Leadership Corps, a community of nearly 50,000 change makers all over the world. To learn more and apply, visit climaterealityproject.org slash new dash York. That's climaterealityproject.org slash new dash York. I hope to see you there. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, Earth Breeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. 
and it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Earlier this year, Dr. James Hansen, Richard Heady, Don Viviani, who you heard from up top, and climate psychologist Lise Van Susteren filed a petition to the EPA, asking them to make a determination around a pretty straightforward question. Do greenhouse gases pose an unreasonable risk to environmental and human health? If so, they would fall under the Toxic Substances Control Act, or TSCA, which explicitly gives the EPA the right to create rules that would remove that harm. In September, the EPA rejected that petition, and in early November, the petitioners took their case to court. I talked to attorney Dan Gilpern of the Climate Protection and Restoration Initiative and Viviani shortly after the case was filed. My name is Don Viviani. I was a scientist at EPA for about 34, 35 years. And at one point in the 90s, I was director of the Climate Policy Assessment Division. So a lot of what's going on now is, is my fault. And I apologize for that, but it was a long time ago. And I also had some other divisions that were with regulations. And I was, I was chairman of the Great Lakes Water Quality Commission, Toxic Substance Commission. So I know a little bit about all of the things that are up here. My name is Dan Galpern. I am the founder, executive director, and general counsel of Climate Protection and Restoration Initiative. And for about the last 13 years and still, I serve as the attorney and policy advisor to the well-known climate scientist, James Hansen. And I met Don probably about seven years ago when we were talking about a similar petition to the Environmental Protection Agency that he actually filed. So under the Toxic Substances Control Act, the Environmental Protection Agency is to impose certain restrictions on a chemical substance or mixture where the agency determines that that chemical substance or mixture presents an unreasonable risk of injury to health or the environment. And the law was established to protect the public and the natural world from the increasing intrusion into the environment of chemical substances from our increasingly industrial society. And so our petition established, I think, in considerable detail that greenhouse gases and fossil fuels, which are the primary sources of the over-concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere now, especially carbon dioxide and methane, and some of the other 
greenhouse gases as well, clearly impose an unreasonable risk of injury to health and the environment. In fact, President Biden, both before he became president as candidate and then also as president, has referred to the climate crisis that's created by the overconcentration of these chemicals as an existential threat to our nation and to the planet. So it's well beyond an unreasonable risk. And there are alternative, which renders the risk doubly un- unreasonable. So our petition called upon the agency to undertake a rulemaking to eliminate that unreasonable risk. And in particular, we said it should act under the statute to phase out greenhouse gas emissions and fossil fuels. And the reason for that, as we explained in the petition, is that current global warming and current acidification of the oceans is a function not of future emissions, but of the accumulated emissions from especially since the late late 1970s and 1980s. And so the companies that have profited the most from the ability to utilize the atmosphere as an open sewer should by right pay to, at least in part, to clean up their mess. I could never understand when I was at the agency why they would need a petition to regulate greenhouse gases under Tosca. It's maddening that with a petition, they're unwilling to do their job. Tosca is a chemical safety act. It's supposed to keep us safe from unsafe chemicals. CO2 and methane are the two most unsafe chemicals that mankind has ever been presented with. If Tosca can't regulate those two things, I don't know what the hell it's good for. So really, all the petition does is it just asks EPA to do its job. The science of the risk isn't particularly fancy. I mean, it's the physics of a microwave oven and the chemistry of your soda stream machine. So it's not like the science is a problem. And we're already seeing the fact that these greenhouse gases, the legacy ones that are still up there, are baking and burning the planet and acidifying the ocean. So the risk is there. All the elements are there. They just need to do their job. Absolutely. Uh, Thanks for that. The reason we turned to this approach, well, number one, it makes sense because the law is clear on its face. If there are chemical substances and mixtures that present an unreasonable risk, the agency must act to eliminate that unreasonable risk, to the point of fitting those chemical substances and mixtures. But the reason we turn to this as well is because this is existing law. And for decades now, Congress has been at an impasse over what to do about the climate crisis. Now, this year, uh, with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act and the earlier passage of the bipartisan infrastructure law, the Democratic majorities in both houses did act somewhat to begin addressing the risk by amplifying investments in clean energy and by paying for additional research and development and deployment of carbon negative technologies to remove or learn how to remove excess greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. But two things. Number one, it's no better than a drop in the proverbial bucket. Number two, it's all done on the taxpayer's dime. And so in no way do these efforts begin to require the industries that have most profited from the ability to utilize the atmosphere as an open sewer to try to resolve the problem. And That's important because unless we establish the principle that the polluter should pay to help clean up its mess, then we're essentially imposing the entire burden on our children and future generations. We need to have a substantial stake in this beyond just the ability to profit from certain new tax credits. We should impose an incentive structure for them to rapidly phase out emissions and to commence cleaning up their mess. Just do, do want to comment on, on the IRA. I mean, yeah. it's, 
it's fine. It's fine that, that it does it does decarbonize a little bit. It certainly does provide for some decarbonization, again, as Dan said, on a taxpayer's dime, and enables people who have a tax liability, so it's not everybody, but it enables people to have a tax liability to use greener energy, and, and that's great. But if you want to fix the problem, so first of all, fossil fuels are part of our economic DNA. And you really can't fix greenhouse gas problems without an economic solution. And there are two ways to limit our production of greenhouse gases. Number one, you can limit fossil fuel supply and you can limit fossil fuel demand. Fossil fuel demand is limited somewhat by the decarbonization. You know, people won't need as much if they've got heat pumps out there and they're using solar energy and and that's fine. But we're actually increasing a little bit fossil fuel supply through some of the aspects of the IRA. For example, uh, it allows uh, power plants and industrial boilers and other folks to continue to burn coal and oil and natural gas as long as they capture some small portion of that using using carbon capture and storage. Now, city production and power production is a high-cost infrastructure and low margin. And if the taxpayer is paying for the infrastructure that's required to carbon capture, uh, then actually we're actually making sure that we're going to be using fossil fuels far into the future. And especially since most of the carbon that's captured is not actually sequestered initially, it's actually used to, to capture gas and oil that's hard to get to. So it's actually producing more oil and gas than, than they would have otherwise. Plus, through carbon capture and storage, if you look at the upstream and downstream emissions, you're actually only capturing 40 or 50 percent of the CO2. The power plants are emitting about 15 times the the ambient levels of CO2 under the best conditions of carbon capture. I mean, we had then kind of same again with the COP negotiations where, yeah. you know, there's very little appetite for saying no more fossil fuels or no more yes. emissions. And they're also increasing the ability to drill through additional right. drilling rights. What I find most pernicious about the IRA is that it gives people the impression that, well, we can relax because, you know, we, we basically solved most of the problem and I'm sure we'll solve the rest of it. And that's not true at all. So this, to me, this is sort of like government greenwashing saying, oh, no, we took care of this problem. No, you didn't take care of it. There's a lot of politicians and political reporters, too, that don't understand that climate policy doesn't work quite the way other policies do, where a compromise is a big win. <laughs> I think it's important not to paper over the problems that you just mentioned. And carbon capture and storage is a good one. Yeah. The reason why I think this COP was an abject failure is is the same as the reason that COP26 in Glasgow was a failure. And that is a failure to establish as a central minimum standard that we need to phase out fossil fuels. Now, in Glasgow, in the final communique, there was a sentence or a sentence fragment that called upon the parties to phase down coal, not other fossil fuels, but coal, to the extent that the coal is was unabated. And this year, there was a movement led by India and then supported by the United States, in particular John Kerry, to call for a phase down 
not only of coal, but also oil and natural gas. But this never made it in because of the opposition of a number of countries. So this is a problem, as Don pointed out. If we continue to produce and import and export and distribute and sell fossil fuels, they will be used as intended. And used as intended means the release of considerable quantities of greenhouse gas emissions, especially CO2. And so that takes us to CCS. Carbon capture and storage is not yet established or proven at scale in the United States or anywhere else. Nonetheless, funding of CCS projects were one central feature of the Inflation Reduction Act. And so, you know, a commitment to funding more research and development and deployment of CCS, that has been decided, for better or for worse, this year in the United States. CCS should not count to eliminate a producer obligations with respect to reducing emissions unless it's highly effective. And so we will be monitoring and pressing for that. For example, if you are emitting 50% or more of the emissions that you otherwise would admit, well, then that is no solution. We need to essentially phase out all emissions and remove a share of the excess if we are to have a prayer of of protecting and restoring a viable climate for our, our children and future generations. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to let you describe this lawsuit now. <laughs> okay. so, so EPA rejected the petition on several grounds, some of which were quite surprising. The most surprising of which is that the EPA said that it was doing enough already uh, with respect to the IRA and with respect to other rules that it had already enacted and rules that it was planning to enact to meet the president's goals in reducing emissions. And they named a number of those rules. They only provided a quantitative assessment of emissions reductions, however, from one of the measures, that is the Inflation Reduction Act. And in fact, that one shows only a small, real, but a small reduction from what otherwise was to occur without the IRA. They provided no spreadsheet that showed that you know you'll get 17% from the IRA here and you'll get you know x percent from new tailpipe emissions here and all of that adds up to 100%. No, they didn't provide anything like that. So that is one of the basis of, of our lawsuit that they not only did fail to prove what they asserted, they didn't even attempt to make any such showing. And furthermore, that's not even the standard that's relevant under the law. The standard under the Toxic Substance Control Act is not that you need to reduce the chemicals to the point that any particular administration has indicated it seeks to do. You need to act to confront the unreasonable risk until the point that you've eliminated that unreasonable risk. And that is a much more stringent standard. In any event, we sued 12, asking the court in the District of Oregon for Eugene to itself determine that greenhouse gas emissions and fossil fuels present an unreasonable risk of injury to health of the environment. And therefore, on that basis, to instruct the Environmental Protection Agency to open up the rulemaking that we requested in the petition. That is the remedy that Congress provided for in Section 21 of the Toxic Substances Control Act. And the court is supposed to take its own fresh look 
at the relevant facts. Do carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, HFCs, and, and the other greenhouse gases and their principal sources, fossil fuels, do they present an unreasonable risk of injury to health or the environment or not? And if they do, then it should compel the agency to undertake a rulemaking under TSCA to address that risk. Again, what really enraged me is, is not only did they not provide the information to show that what they were doing was actually going to be enough, they asked us to provide the information that it wasn't going to be enough. They said, you know, in your lawsuit, you didn't show that all the things that we're doing and that we intend to do aren't going to be enough. I mean, which is crazy. They're not only asking us to approve a negative, they're asking us to read their minds. What it boils down to is they said, don't worry about it. We've got this handled. And and that's the sort of response you give to your spouse when you're standing on a stool instead of a stepladder to change a light bulb. No, no, I have this. I have this under control. This is this is completely safe. It's not what you say when, when the future of the planet hangs in balance. You've got to be pretty damn sure that you do have it under control and you have to demonstrate how you have it under control. And they didn't do that. Mm-hmm. So now you've filed a suit. Is there any kind of different argument that it's making and what could it compel the EPA to do? So, I mean, an- another thing that we pointed out was that it is it's not plaintiff's burden to establish exactly what the rule should be. That's a function for the agency in the course of rulemaking. Under the statute, they should be going out to the public and trying to cull the best ideas as to how this actually should be done, including reaching out to communities around the country. And so had they done what they should have, which is to have granted the petition, they should have gone to highly impacted communities or communities where there are scientific bodies, where people have been thinking through these issues. And you know, basically, they should have gone out to America to figure out how best to proceed. And there's you know, a procedure for that. It's in the statute. It's called an advanced notice of rulemaking where they would seek input. Well, they didn't do that. We, by the way, decided that if they're not going to do it, we will do it to the extent that we have resources. And so on November 1, 11 days before we filed the lawsuit, we actually held a public hearing in Boulder, Colorado, in conjunction with the city of Boulder in city council chambers. And 20 experts from around the world actually testified, some in person and some by Zoom. And you can find the full record of that at cprclimate.org. We provided that record to the Environmental Protection Agency. That's the sort of thing that the agency should be doing. In any event, we in our petition and in the lawsuit both uh, reserve the right to provide additional input to the agency in conjunction with that rulemaking under TSCA or other existing EPA authority. It needs to act so as to phase out fossil fuel emissions, particularly greenhouse gas emissions. And in addition, they need to ensure the removal of a substantial amount of the overburden of uh, atmospheric CO2 and methane. Because unless that is done, we will not be able to reverse the present crisis in sufficient time to preserve, for example, nature as we've come to know it. We need to do both. And the agency has the authority to commence that entire project by utilizing the authorities that we laid out in the lawsuit. Amy, you asked what else was new, and and there's a couple of things. The IRA is new. 
it's not in the petition because it was passed after we'd filed. So we talk about that and that's sort of brand new. The, the other thing, in 2015, I did a petition EPA under the Toxic Substances Control Act to, to regulate CO2 because of ocean acidification. And, and I did that as sort of a workaround because, you know, there are a lot of screwy climate deniers out there, but nobody could really deny the fact that the oceans were actually being acidified. And EPA responded to that petition by saying, don't worry, we're handling ocean acidification. And that was in 2015. We didn't file a civil suit. And I think one of the main reasons was because we thought a judge would give deference to the fact that the agency was promising that, in fact, it was unnecessary for them to regulate it under TSCA because, trust me, we have it handled. Now, this may sound familiar because that's exactly what they said this time. So they didn't have a secret plan last time, and, and they don't have a secret plan this time. So that, that's sort of new. Also, in their rejection in 2015 of Don's petition, they said that the Toxic Substances Control Act does not apply to greenhouse gases because they said greenhouse gases like CO2 are mere byproducts of, of other activity. There was no support in the statute for that. And in fact, that was just plain wrong. Mm-hmm. One of the nice things about their current letter of rejection, however, is that they admit that the Toxic Substances Control Act is available to control greenhouse gas emissions, greenhouse gas pollution. So we point out in the lawsuit that the agency admits to that. And the other thing that the agency admits to that we pointed out in our complaint is that the scientific evidence that we laid out in the petition is of sufficient quantity and robustness to have been essentially on par with the evidence that they used in 2009 to ground the endangerment finding which kicked off the agency's restrictions on uh, tailpipe emissions from you know, autos and light trucks. Yeah. Nonetheless, in their letter of rejection, they did not decide one way or the other whether greenhouse gas emissions present an uh, unreasonable risk of injury to health in, or in the environment. They neatly avoided that central question. Do you think you might see interveners like the American Petroleum Institute or the U.S. Chamber, any of these folks that have intervened in other climate cases? I think that it's a possibility, but I I don't want to talk about that before it happens. We're prepared for all eventualities, Mm -hmm. but, you know, the agency does not need their help. This is an agency determination, and it, it should be made on the question of risk and risk alone. That kind of answers the next thing I was going to ask you, which is to what extent does it seem possible that this response from them came in the wake of West Virginia versus EPA. And maybe the EPA is thinking, oh, if we make a rule on greenhouse gases, it's going to end up in the Supreme Court. And I wonder if you think that played a role. Well, I don't want to speak for the agency on that. I think it's possible, although the words West Virginia did not appear in their letter of rejection. But I'd like to talk to it more generally. A number of the rules that the agency is contemplating or may be contemplating are based on provisions of of law that are far less particular as to the agency's specific duties than is the Toxic Substances Control Act. Like take, for example, the provision of the Clean Air Act that was at issue in the West Virginia versus EPA case. There, the Obama administration built its clean power plan on the basis of a provision that that was quite general, if you go back and read the majority opinion. Uh, But here, under specifically Section 6 of the Toxic Substances Control Act, 
the agency is required, not permitted, but is required to impose requirements to ensure that any such unreasonable risk from these chemical substances are eliminated. And so, in fact, I think that the West Virginia decision provides a very strong argument for action under the Toxic Substances Control Act, if they want to do anything serious about the climate crisis at all. So if they intend to seriously enact a full-fledged decarbonization program in the United States, then you want it to be based on a firm legal foundation. And that's what we had in mind with respect to our petition for the Toxic Substance Control Act. Even before the West Virginia decision, we were concerned about this very issue because West Virginia did not arise out of whole cloth. There have been recurrent efforts by the Supreme Court over, over recent years to cut back EPA authority to get after the climate risk, where they were relying on statutes that are far more ambiguous on the question than TSCA. Yeah, let, let me uh, maybe support that a little bit more. If you read the West Virginia decision, mm-hmm. the majority decision, it says that EPA is an expert in how the United States should produce its energy because under the law, it gave folks who, who burn coal, for example, uh, the opportunity to lessen their emissions by using, for example, green energy sources to provide some of the power. And the court said rightly so, really, that EPA was an expert in that Department of Energy was. Well, again, now we're talking about chemical safety and EPA is exactly expert in that. It's what they do. It's also about risk and EPA is experts in risk. So EPA is actually expert in this. The other thing is that EPA has an internal process that it uses to decide whether or not to regulate. And at no point in that process does it say, are we handling it through other means? That comes in later. The first part of the process is, is there a risk? And clearly there's a risk. The second part of the process is, is it a significant risk? And there is a significant risk. The third part of the process is, do we need a work group for it? Because it may be an unreasonable risk. And the answer to that is, of course. And they, and that's what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to establish a work group. They weren't supposed to jump to the answer and say, no, no, we have this handled. Mm, that's so interesting. Okay, so what's the next step here? Well, we a lot happens before you get to a trial, but eventually we're headed to a trial on the question, these chemicals present an unreasonable risk. And the court needs to decide that on the basis of the record that we establish in court. So there will be experts testifying on the question. This is going to be a full-fledged civil lawsuit Mm -hmm. over that question. And then if the court makes the decision that we think is compelled by the reasonable evidence, then we'll be back to the point where the agency should be already, which is that the agency should be Undertaking a rulemaking. The last question I have for both of you is just, well, two things. One, I'm curious to hear both of your opinions on why Tosca hasn't really been used in this way by the agency. Don, like, I, I remember you talking about this petition in 2015, and it seemed like such a no-brainer. So I'm curious what has kept them from using it. And then the other is just what you would say to to people who are like, well, 
we don't have time for a, a lawsuit. We need to, you know, be tackling this issue now. And and why is the EPA dragging their feet so much? Is there any other sort of way to push them? First of all, as to why they haven't done it before, it's because they were frightened. They got hammered really badly on the asbestos case, and I thought they had a slam dunk there, but but they didn't. And it was because the courts felt they didn't do their due diligence in looking at other alternatives. They, you know, they didn't look at costs and benefits properly, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know what? Congress got rid of that requirement in the 2016 amendments. So I really don't know why the Trump administration didn't jump on it then. It's quite puzzling. The other thing is, is that, yeah, a lawsuit is going to take a long time. And on the other hand, there's no other alternative. We can't march into EPA and hold guns to their heads. You know, they're going to do what they're going to do, but we have to compel them. Well, they could, in fact, because of fear of the lawsuit or because of a groundswell of support for the lawsuit, decide that they made a mistake and maybe they ought to revisit this and maybe they ought to open up a a work group and they ought to hold some more public hearings and find out what people really think. So that's basically what I have to say. As far as I know, I can't think of any other mechanism because they still need a legal mechanism to deal with the fossil fuel companies, to deal with emissions. And this is the only one I right. see. It's, it's what it was designed to do. Tosca was designed to fill in when other authorities weren't working. And if there was ever a situation where other authorities weren't working, it's climate change. Yeah. There's no question but w- that we know what needs to be done, and so does the agency. So, I mean, it is embarrassing to have to point this out, but to have hid behind the type of that they are doing enough already when they know that that is not true. That is, that's not a position that the United States and the agency need to retain. The agency has a track record of, to its credit, of sometimes reconsidering past preliminary decisions or past decisions in the light of new evidence and new information. And here there is new information. They had the standard wrong, and the United States now has a new, strong position with respect to the need to do something serious about fossil fuels and greenhouse gas emissions. And Mm -hmm. there's the information that the international system under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change is going to be ineffective on these central questions unless some major nation or group of nations takes leadership. The combination, for example, of the United States and the European Union could provide just that leadership, but it needs to be more than words. And so here, the United States could match its rhetoric by an example, by making itself an example of good behavior to seriously address the crisis. I understand why fossil fuel companies don't want to do anything about climate change, but I don't understand why the EPA would be fighting the idea of doing something about it. I should say, on the other hand, however, the statute was used for just this purpose to commence the phase out of chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs. Mm -hmm. And under a rule promulgated by the agency, I think even without a citizen's petition, but I'm not sure about that, where they... So, yeah, so there you go, Don. I mean, back in 1978, the agency was able to act even without a citizens group coming forward. And they did it for two reasons. The principal reason that they cited in in their draft rule and their final rule was to address a potent ozone-depleting chemical, CFCs, because there was concern 
they're still concerned, but now we've started to address it substantially, that the ozone layer was thinning and was going to lead to serious environmental and public health consequences. But number two, they said in their rule that they were doing this because CFCs are a potent global warming forcing agent. And so there you go. You have a administrative precedent using the same statute against a greenhouse gas that is, you know, distributed worldwide. Uh, and so it, it's, a, it's a tremendous precedent on which the agency can build. I have a lot of yeah. friends at EPA, and hopefully when this is all over, I'll still have a lot of friends at EPA. But the thing yeah. to remember is, is that EPA isn't a monolith. I mean, there's lots of different right. opinions there. And uh, I would bet that 90% of the employees there and staffers, because those guys are working at EPA, most of them, because they're environmentalists, mm-hmm. would love to do this. But I think, right. I think that, that this was, was a political decision, that, that we have the IRA, we can ease off a little bit now. And I believe that we weren't given a fair trial in the agency and that the decision was made beforehand that we need to find a way to shut this down. And they found a bunch of reasons. And that's why the reasons aren't very good because there are no good reasons. There's one other thing that's worthy of mention because they mention it in their, their letter of rejection. And they say that this is not one of our major reasons, but we also want to say that we're severely underfunded. I was just going to say that. I've heard this about the methane rule, too. And I know Senator Whitehouse has already brought this up. Like, hey, this new and improved and much more stringent rule is great, but it's not going to mean anything if we don't have the resources to actually enforce it. And I think that that is kind of a recurring thing at EPA, right? They need to be funded and staffed enough to actually enforce these laws. Every time there's a new administration... They scramble everything. They do. They, they basically says, all right, these are our new priorities. You guys aren't doing this. You guys are now doing that. And, and they spread around resources. And you've got to triage this. You have to say, what's the biggest risk facing the American people and the globe right now? And it's climate change. And, you know, we're going to just stop doing some of these other things, even though they're mandated by law, because this is mandated by law, too. And it's way more important. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what they have been doing and what they're planning to do pales in importance with this overriding question. And so, you know, if it's necessary for them to get additional resources to undertake this rulemaking, which I'm not quite sure it is, but if it is necessary, well, then they should seek a budget augmentation for the purpose or reallocation for the purpose. We can't let something as parochial or as basic as whether the agency has the resources to do an adequate rulemaking particularly where this problem has been studied so much by the U.S. government and by other agencies and by private organizations and every single National Academy of Sciences on the planet. You know, we we can't let that impair us from acting. Well, and also, isn't it true that getting on top of this would also get on top of so many of the other air pollutants that EPA has to deal with too, right? I mean, it's not like these are mutually exclusive things. No, and, and we point that out in our magnus opus, the part two of our petition, that you know, just from particulates alone, it's a substantial threat to public health. I mean, we're already overdue. We will be stemming far worse 
problems with respect to global warming and ocean acidification, the potential collapse of the food web, the you know mm-hmm. tremendous imposition on human and natural systems, including agriculture, and the potential loss of major cities along the coastlines, including in the United States. So yeah, we're in a, for a world of hurt unless we get serious. And this is the most straightforward way we know of doing it. That's it for this time. I'll be posting updates on these cases as they happen to our website at drilledpodcast.com and possibly to the podcast feed as well. Make sure that you're subscribed to our newsletter at drilledpodcast.com to get breaking news as well as our weekly roundup of climate coverage. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. is an original Critical Frequency production. Our producer is Sarah Ventry. Sound design, mixing, and mastering are by Peter Duff, who also wrote our original score. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton at the First Amendment Project. And the show is reported, written, and hosted by me, Amy Westervelt. 